Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Michelle Brazier. I'm a nice lady. <laughs> Hello, nice lady, Michelle Brazier. It is <laughs> nice. To, uh, I think in the background as you were answering then, I heard some sort of stage instructions or somebody calling to, to stage. Are you in a theatre today? Is that where I find yes. you? Yes. I'm backstage at the Comedy Festival Gala. I just had my tech and so now I'm here and I've got my dog and I've got my I've got everything. I've moved in. Okay, so hang on. So you're backstage at the Comedy Festival Gala, which is where this year? Is it at the Palais Theatre? Yes, Palais, yep. Okay, so you're at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda. You have your dog there who's what, come to rehearsals or is the dog part of the Comedy Festival Gala? No, she's come to rehearsals. She's a, a guide dog ambassador dog. So she and guide dogs is a partner of comedy festival. So she's going to be a little face face of the uh, organisation. She's going to heaps of people's shows and an accessibility icon. She H- is. Hang on, but all right. So run me through this. I want to know the story. I'm, I'm sorry that we've leapt into your philosophy episode, and I'm immediately much more interested in what's going on with your dog. But it's I, a sign of being a good person, I think. So tell, tell. Okay. So introduce your dog to the audience and introduce what her role in the comedy festival is. Okay. So Eva is a guide dog ambassador. She's nearly two years old. She's so she's a graduate guide dog ambassador so she's not partnered with a person who is blind or vision impaired but she is instead sort of a public face so she goes and she gets pats from sponsors and she goes to events and I take her to places so that uh, if someone says you can't have a guide dog in here then I'm the person who has that conversation who says that's actually illegal she's allowed to come in so that somebody else doesn't have to have that conversation uh-huh. um, and also you know she's cute and she inspires love but yeah comedy festival is uh, a good partner and they're trying to be more accessible so we're taking Eva to a bunch of shows which is great she's gonna just sit on the stage in my show I think I mean, I'm so into this whole idea. I didn't even realise this was a possibility. I can't believe they haven't run it. I mean, my dogs would be no good in this situation. They would ruin people's shows, <laughs> including my own. But I am. this is such a great idea because I'd never really considered like that idea of that you can have that conversation rather than somebody who's already in an awkward situation about yeah. their life. That's very clever. And I do really genuinely applaud the Comedy Festival and their approach to accessibility because... One of the things mm. that we all know is that, yes, the major venues probably have an accessibility plan because they're major venues regardless and they need to have one. Whereas when the comedy festival happens, quite often what happens is suddenly every single available room becomes a venue and they aren't necessarily set up as accessible venues for everybody. So Yeah, this it's is a, hard. Yeah. Oh, well, this is great. I'm excited already. Very, very <laughs> excited about this. This is, a, this is a fun thing that I've learned about just today that I did not know about. Can we talk about the Comedy Festival Gala? Because comedians, you know, on this show previously have talked about the importance that the gala had in their life when they were growing up. You know, it was often the only way that you could see stand-up and stand-up performance on television, particularly international acts, you know, before the days of YouTube and, you know, being able to watch things from overseas. So... What about you? Tell me where the Comedy Festival Gala sits in your life. Because you're a bit younger. Was it, it, was it still an iconic, important thing to you? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was, I watched every single year and I knew everybody's set off by heart. I probably still do. For my 12th birthday party, I made everybody sit down and watch the gala and then good news week. Like I was a freak. I was such a little freak. So it's pretty incredible for me to be here. This is my first gala. So it's a very special day. So I was going to ask you this. So, uh, first gala, first solo performance. At a gala, are you doing something by yourself or are you doing something with somebody else? What's going on? Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing it by myself, mm-hmm. which is funny because I'm a bit of a that girl from, you know, I play well with others. Um, so it's really nice for me to be doing this by myself and for them to have asked and to trust me without a safety net of another human. <laughs> right. We, we, we will let you bring a dog just in case. Yeah, they've let me bring the dog. Yeah, they're like, she can't be alone. <laughs> Uh, so okay, solo gala. How does it feel then? So, is uh, if rehearsals today? Does that mean that you're taping your like the gala is actually tonight? The day that we're recording this, it'll be tonight. Yeah, it's tonight. It's tonight. So it's a it's it's a nervous feeling, but I'm feeling really happy. I'm really glad to be here and grateful. I feel actually quite calm. Okay, that's that's a cool thing. So, do you have uh, expectations? Do you know where you are in the lineup? Like, is that because yeah. for people who are watching at home, you might not realise that the order you see the acts on television isn't necessarily the order they perform on the night. And what happens with the gala is there is a lot of very intensive study of where you are in the lineup. And then a whole bunch of theories about why that's a good or bad position in the lineup. You're either after someone who's hilariously funny and then you're like, oh, it'll be hard to follow them. Or if you're after someone who's hilariously funny, you're like, that's great because the audience will be in a really good mood. You're on early, that's good. You're on late, that's good. You're on early, that's bad. You're on late, that's bad. Do you know where you are in the lineup? I do. I'm closing the first bracket. Oh, great spot. Yeah. (laughs) That is actually... (laughs) Yeah, I'm really happy. I do music, so I think it's good to close out with music. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and who's on before you? Dave O'Neill. Okay, great. Perfect. That's a very yeah. good, that's a good spot. Yeah. yeah. And the hosts of my very dear friends, the Donna Boys. So I feel very um, safe, sandwiched in love. Yeah, it's interesting. That is, I think, it must be, make it feel more comfortable because for people who don't know, you've done a whole bunch of work over the years with the Auntie Donna uh, cruise so yeah does it does it feel a little bit even more special that not only is it your first gala but that you're sharing that first gala with them hosting you know, yeah their first gala yeah it's really special it's really really nice um I, I don't know they've they've been so wonderful to me and we're such good friends and they make me feel very safe but they also make me feel like I'm I'm worthy and you know I deserve it I think there's something when I was a kid watching the gala I um I wanted to be I loved it and I wanted to be a part of it but I didn't really know how um because there were so few women there were amazing women but um especially doing music they were mostly men and um so I just didn't think I could do it and so there's I think there is a little thing that sits in my chest that's like is this is this actually for you so this I think it's it's a really nice uh, little symbol of um not deserving. I don't think people deserve things, but, um, you know, I've earned my place here. Okay, so that's interesting to me because we talk a lot on this show about the idea of, you know, if you can see it, you can be it and how you know, important representation is when it comes to, you know, inspiring people to do what they do. So you were conscious of the fact, you know, when you're a kid, when you're 12, year old, 12 years old, having your gala Good News Week birthday party, you're aware of the <laughs> fact that there isn't a lot of women doing this thing that you love. 
yeah yeah I was hyper aware of it um so it's interesting and I think for a long time I wanted to be one of the boys because of that you know Mm -hmm. I wanted to be funny like the boys I wanted to make the boys laugh um and it's so silly and it feels silly now you know in 2021 to be thinking that but I'm just really hopeful and sometimes I get messages from people young girls and it feels like I I am that for them I'm Mm -hmm. that person that they've seen which is really special and really really uh I feel very privileged how did you get involved with the auntie Donna team how did you start working with those guys um we went to uni together so we studied down in Ballarat at the Arts Academy. Um, we didn't really know each other then because they did the acting course, I did the music theatre course. So I wanted to be a music theatre performer and play the funny friend in the musicals. Mm. Um, <laughs> that was my whole plan. It's actually um, a good role. There's always a funny friend in a musical. Yeah, I love funny friend. She's great. Um, <laughs> but the uh, universe had other plans, which is really nice. But I um, I met them in third year, I think. Mark, I sort of knew. But the others I met in third year, I did a 10-minute cabaret about um, wanting to have sex with Aladdin. Mm. And they just went, who is this girl and where is she, how, where has she been for the last three years? Um, and, uh, yeah, and then I was working with um, Vince Malazzi, who also has worked with them previously now but we were a duo called backwards anorak and the boys came to see the show and went this is so this is fucking weird and fun and we love this and so they invited me to come and do a sketch and then i guess we just hit it off we have a really good working relationship and so now i'm just always uh always going in for different roles it's really nice i love working with them they're a wonderful team including everyone you know the the um the costume people that they always get back and and um you know the sound team and the dop everyone's always a great team it's a gorgeous little family uh so where did this style of humor come from let's tell the origin story because i'm fascinated by this comedy fan i've got a real picture of you now as like you know this kind of you know teenage comedy fan where did the love of comedy come from in the first place um look i was i was a lot younger than my brother and my sister so i had to make a lot of fun for myself so i found a lot of time i found myself watching tv for a lot of time and i watched a lot of comedy i don't know i guess i just loved it and i really loved musical comedy um which i know some people turn their noses up at but it's great and uh i think it's uh, it's very silly when people do that um but i just i just loved the idea of beautiful you know three-part harmony singing about disgusting stuff I just that juxtaposition has always really appealed to me um I think South Park was a big thing um you know they did South Park Bigger Longer and Uncut and that was a musical a musical movie animated and I was like this is the kind of musical I want to do so I think it was just kind of in my bones a bit have you seen uh the Book of Mormon did you get an opportunity (sighs) to go and see it yeah I loved it I thought it was incredible it, that to me seems like the pinnacle of what you're talking about, which is this idea that it is still that exact same irreverent humour, but it is just done, like the musicality of it and the production of it, it is done to the same level of the musicality and production of any you know, Broadway musical, any West End yeah. musical. And But the humour is, and it works beautifully. You know, I guess Tim Minchin plays in that space as well. Bo Burnham plays in this space. People who are incredible musicians as well as being incredibly funny and just putting them together. That you don't need to be funny musically. You can be great musically and funny comedically at the same time. 
Yeah, I just think the the elevation of the comedy is really nice. I've always liked comedy theatre or comedy music or, you know, something that gives it another lift, even if it's just really good lighting. Like, I just love, I love drama, I suppose, in work, in, in artworks. What, what comedians were you watching then? Like, if you love musical comedy, like, who would have it been that you were watching? Um, Tripod. Yep. and Paul <laughs> McDermott, all the, like just so many people that I know now. So yeah. um, it's a bit weird. When I met Tripod, I'd known them for about two years and then they became like, you know, quite chummy mates. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to have to start changing my uh, email address passwords because for a long time they were all Tripod. And then I was like, oh, I can't. What if I have to type it in in front of Gatesy one day? Like it was just too much. But I was like, it's holding this little secret. And Tim Minchin as well. Um, Eddie Perfect, but yeah, it's uh, it's a bit weird to know literally all of them now and be like, hello, we're peers. <laughs> I mean, I think every comedian has that experience. I mean, it's rare that you haven't been influenced by, you know, people who've come before you. There are some. There are some comedians yeah. who just drop in with no influences at all and they just, you know, have funny bones and they want to be a comedian. But a lot of people who are comedians want to be comedians because they grew up loving comedy and watching comedy and admiring certain styles of comedy and the nature of the way our industry works is that there isn't the differentiation between ranking levels that there is in some other industries like if you're like a you know a club golfer you don't play with tiger woods but if you're a club comedian you can play with the yeah the tiger woods equivalent of comedy you know yeah and yeah it is something quite magical about particularly on a day like today where you're playing this huge show you know there's the best comedians in the world uh you know, ready to go. Certainly the best comedians in Australia. I mean, we've shut the borders a bit this year, so there's only a few, you know, kind of global A few missing, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's an incredible thing. So tell me about, um, you know, did you grow up in Ballarat? Is that why you went to school there? Where did you grow up? No, I grew up in Wagga Wagga, oh. um, which is in regional New South Wales. Mm. So. I know where it is. I've got a whole story about Wagga Wagga, Michelle. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> I was there for the festival and I was like, oh, God, this is very embarrassing. Um, but, yeah, I grew, I grew up there. I grew up seeing Comedy Festival Roadshow there and now I've done roadshows, which is it's really nice. But, I, um, yeah, I grew up in Wagga and I ended up in Ballarat because I moved – when I was 18, I got into VCA, Victorian College of the mm. Arts, which is a very fancy place. And I moved down to Melbourne by myself and I did the first year. And then a lot happened uh, to me in this this one year. Um, I, had to, I ended up in hospital and I had to learn to walk again and I lost my father. And the last thing that my dad said to me to do, because I had enrolled in two courses. I went, I, could, I can't go back to VCA. I've lost so much, so much has changed. Um, and I said to dad, I've enrolled in... Uh, teaching and I've enrolled in music theatre at Ballarat where what do you think I should do and he said go follow your dreams go to Ballarat which is follow your dreams go to Ballarat is a funny sentence Um, not not often uttered by people but sure no (laughs) look he's done a lot of medication in the old Um, days sure a hundred years ago people were saying that a lot but these days yeah that's true maybe he was confused and he thought I was gonna get some gold (laughs) he probably was a bit confused but um yeah, so I just, I guess I just went with his gut on that and I'm so glad I did. Okay, so, uh, I mean, if it's, you know, um, again, like I don't, you know, delve into this as much as you feel comfortable, obviously, but, you know, so you lost your dad, how, I mean, how did he die? What was he sick? 
so dad had um pancreatic cancer and he i'd just gotten out of the hospital um after a month of you know learning to walk and i i I was on such heavy medication that i didn't realize that dad hadn't been to visit me and then i got out mum said dad's been sick and then we didn't know what it was we thought it was his diabetes medication and then he was diagnosed with cancer and seven days later he died so it happened really really quickly yeah which was kind of a blessing yeah um because i i remember him as standing on his own two feet you know i spent a day with him in the hospital and that was it. It wasn't years and years and years of drawn out hope and despair. It was, this is happening. Strap in, you've got enough time to say goodbye, which was in the end quite um, kind for me. I don't know what how my mum would feel about that or my brothers and sister, my brother and sister, but um, for me, I thought it was actually quite, quite a nice amount of time. Um, he didn't have too long to feel scared, but then again, he didn't have enough long, uh, enough time to feel ready either. Do you, I mean, I, it's very hard to, you know, deal with pancreatic cancer at the worst times. It's, it's, they always say it's one of the you know, most vir- you know, terrible forms of cancer to get and none of them are good to get. Um, yeah. It can really eat you away and, you know, but a week isn't a lot of time. You know, I've had yeah. I've had Craig Coombs on this podcast, and he's had seven years. You know, they told him he was gonna yeah could die in a week, and he's had seven years, and that's a different thing because he did all his you know I've got to do my bucket list, I've got to say goodbye to everybody, and then he's like, and and I'm still here. <laughs> guys, yeah, he's still around. Guys, I'm really still here. Whereas like a week is it's just it, it can never be enough time to say all the things that you want to say to people or do all the things. Was there? Did you get the impression when you're having this conversation with your father about what you should be doing with your life that he felt it was important to give you the right advice in that moment? I think so, yeah. I think, you know, he only had such a limited time to say goodbye to me. So he chose his words carefully and also his words cost him something, you know. Mm. He was so tired, so every breath is is hard. So I think when you get to that point, you choose your words quite carefully but yeah he just um he went down so quickly it was yeah it was a real real shock to the system um but also very interesting my family has a um it's really strong history of of cancer so it's sort of become part of my life and the way that I live now I've lost my brother as well so it's okay we'll just we'll (laughs) occasionally hear that in the background and that'll be fine (laughs) I like There's the idea. a little idea. bit of comedy. <laughs> I honestly love this idea. Probably completely illegal. We're just getting little snippets of the gala. If you don't, what, yeah, if, you yeah. if you can't watch the gala, guys, you can listen to this podcast and occasionally you'll hear the comedian sound checking you in the background. Yeah, but I think that was Dilrook. I don't know what he was yelling about. Something, <laughs> something very funny, I imagine. Good boy. So okay, so um, I think cancer is going to be obviously something that looms reasonably large, you know, in this conversation. But I just wanted to focus just on your dad while we're here for a moment was there Mm. anything that you felt that you had to say to him in that week was it you know when you suddenly find out was there something that was really important for you to share with him in that time I really wanted um dad loved it when I sang and I really wanted to sing for him um and I didn't I didn't do it because 
I felt weirdly vulnerable and I was in a hospital and I think I didn't want to be uncool in front of my brother and sister. Mm. Um, and so I didn't sing for him and I, I knew I should and I knew, uh, I knew he wanted me to and I, I just didn't do it, which is really interesting and, and kind of um, out of line with me now I think anyone who has met me since then would be very surprised to hear that but I think that's maybe that's why because I because I didn't sing for him now I'll I'll always do it um but yeah it's it was a I wanted him to know that I was okay yeah that was really important to me so much so that you know I that extended past his his death I sang at his funeral and I I tried to look after as much as I could. I think I thought if I put on a good enough show, then I'd be all right and everyone else would be all right as well. Um, but, yeah, I really I wanted him to think that I was fine, which is stupid. I was, like, 19 or 20. Like, he didn't – he knew that I was upset. I didn't need to try and be some sort of matriarch that <laughs> he didn't ask me to be. But I felt pressure from myself to prove to him that I could – be fine without him and that he could go if he had to go. Now, which must have been difficult in and of itself because, as you mentioned, you had been sick yourself. So talk talk to us about what had happened there. So I was in – I was just in a house fire um, that was very silly and at the time just felt like, oh, we got out of that okay. But um, it was a heater. I sat too close to a heater and I caught on fire and, and everything caught on fire. Um, and then I had to get skin grafts on my legs, uh, because I had third degree burns, which is when it goes all the way full thickness burns, they call them, which just means it's gross to look at. Um, and so, yeah, I had to get skin grafts. They shaved bits off my body to put on the backs of my legs and I laid completely still for a month, which is hard to do when you're a music theater idiot you know and you're 19 like it's it was very um challenging but also like probably gave me a bit of patience um and a lot of morphine I can't really remember it very I was gonna well. say because the pain of those sort of burns is meant to be incredibly painful do you have any memory yeah. of how painful it was in the first place before the morphine? I do yeah I had two days so I came into the hospital immediately mm. and um you know, I had no skin on my legs and I came into the hospital and because it was the backs of my lower legs and like a slight bit of my thigh, that kind of full thickness burn usually happens to 20% of your body. So the rule is you get a bed and you go straight into surgery. If you have full thickness burns to 20% or more of your body, or it was at the time. And because it was like 15% of my body or something like that, um, the surface area was smaller than usual. There was an argument while behind me, I was lying on my stomach and they were cutting away the bits of skin from my legs that were left and two doctors argued about whether or not I had to have surgery that day or if I could go home. They sent me home for the weekend um, and then they brought me back and then they told me I should never have gone home, which was their fault. But um, yeah, in those two days... I can't imagine you were like, I'll just pop home. Yeah, no, it wasn't my choice. No. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, no, I've got stuff on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, they sent me home with Panadine Fort and, um, and some crutches. Oh. So you end up back in hospital, clearly, you know, having to, you know, like you said, learn how to walk again. And is that because just 
you've been laying down for so long and the way the skin is then on your legs that you just need to get used to like using them again yeah so you because you don't move your muscles atrophy a bit Mm -hmm. which is weird in just a month I thought it would take much longer but you're you just forget your brain isn't good at talking to your legs and your legs aren't very strong and your balance is weird and my skin felt weird it's not the right skin um you know and so it, it was just quite overwhelming and I thought I thought as soon as I was able to get up I'd be able to walk but I hadn't been to the bathroom I hadn't hadn't bent my knees um in a month so that it was really interesting, very humbling, um, but I mean, so was it terrifying? Because I mean, like you said, you're somebody who's, you know, a song and dance gal. You know, somebody. Yeah. Who, you know, w- was there a part of you that was like, this is like I love to dance, I love to move, I love to be able to do all these things, and suddenly I can't do any of these things. I'm having to learn to do it all again. Did you worry about the idea that you wouldn't be able to do, you know, what you were dreaming of doing in the future? Yeah, I was worried. There was a chance that the um, skin graft would be rejected and that I would lose my right leg. That was a concern for a little while because it wasn't sort of healing properly. Um, But I wasn't, I honestly wasn't too worried about it. I'm the eternal optimist a bit. And I just sort of went, well, if that's what happens, I'll do roles where they aren't too dancey and I'll just get you know, a prosthetic or I'll uh, roll onto Australian Idol with a wheelchair and win the competition with a good story. Like, I was just like, I'll figure it out. Like, <laughs> You're like, this is a great backstory. <laughs> I'm like, I'll exploit the <laughs> hell out of this. It's a good three and a half minute, like, guys. <laughs> it's like, a good gala set. <laughs> seriously. Like, my dad died a week after I got out of hospital learning to walk again. If you don't put me through, if I'm not going to Sydney, then this yeah. whole competition is rigged. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah. So, you, I think when you talk about optimism, this is a good place for me to ask you the, the standard question I ask on this show, which is whether you have a life philosophy of some kind. And, you know, we've, we've not got to all the, you know, sort of, battles that you've had to face and so let's talk about the philosophy and let's you know then you know have a chat around some of the other stuff but do you have a life philosophy i have a few um great but i think i love a few yeah i think the overarching one is probably that um you know life is too too short to waste and too precious to take seriously um because i think there's a real there's a it's really easy to lose someone or lose something or be faced with a shorter life expectancy and then really want to make the most of every moment but so much so that you can't enjoy a cup of tea or you can't enjoy um a failure you can't you don't have time for stupid shit um but I love I think that life is in the stupid shit it's in the cups of tea it's in the falling down it's in the um mistakes and you know that it's the dogs we pat and the birds that shit on us it's it's all those silly little things that we don't expect and so I think for me it's I I try to move through the world not putting too much pressure on things but also taking up opportunities and and trying to make it as good as it can be for everyone you know if there's an opportunity to be kind be kind um and not be nice like not be polite Uh um 
being kind, genu- like genuinely helping and saying something that you think someone needs to hear or if someone's wearing something nice, I will tell them. I'll just say, you look really nice in that. I, if I don't know them, you know, or if they've been lovely, someone in the service industry, I'll make a real habit of like finding their name and calling their manager and telling them that they were really lovely. Like I just think those tiny little inclinations that we have towards kindness, I don't waste those. Um, and I don't waste a moment with a dog either. Can you explain explain a little bit more about what you mean about the difference between kind and nice though? Like I think that's a cool idea. So can you explore that a little bit more? Yeah, so I think being nice is being non-confrontational and being trying to please everyone um, and just be, you know, generally likeable and telling people what they want to hear. Um, and I think being kind is doing that, but also when you see someone who needs help maybe in a way that they don't know, you know, I think it's standing up to your friends and saying, you you have a repeated pattern of behavior, it seems to me, and here's something that I think could help you. Or standing up to the guy, like for an, an example, I'm known as a very nice person, but once I bought a full table of people a drink because there was a man, except for one man, because that man had deliberately made my a girlfriend of mine feel very small by doing that to her um, in front of her peers. And he looked up to me, he liked my work, he was in the industry, and I just went, I'm gonna make you feel the way that you made her feel, and that was kindness to her. And it was, yeah. it was unkind to him, and it was childish, but it was to make her feel big. Yeah. And that wasn't a nice thing to do, but it was a kind thing to do to her. I don't know if that's a also, good example. Also, it's a great, it's a, no, I love that example because my, fa- <laughs> my favorite kind of, kind of vengeance is the vengeance that is wrapped up in kindness. You know, you're yeah, doing something yeah. nice for one person and you can feel very righteous about the fact that you've actually done something mean to somebody because you're like, <laughs> yeah. I'm acting on this other person's behalf. I am yeah. I am an avenger. I, I So I, I, did, <laughs> I did that. I think that's a cool thing. So the kindness of being able to tell your friends, I think is something I'd like to explore though because I think mm. a lot of people who love their friends often put up with their you know, poor patterns of behaviour because they love their friends and they think that being part of a good friend is being accepting of your friend's behaviour regardless of what it is. But it feels like that you don't necessarily share that attitude. You think that it's about being able to actively involve yourself in, you know, them and their lives. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it depends and you have to approach these things gently because first of all, you probably don't know better. You just have to say what you've noticed. You know, you can't just give advice unqualified and assume that you're better than them. You don't know better than them. But if you've noticed something and it seems to be upsetting someone, I think it's unkind not to say, um, I see you crying. I see you very upset about this. You're constantly upset about this job. And I hear you saying you don't have time to look for a job, but I've seen you do this, this and this, which have taken up your time. Let's carve out some time. How can I make you, how can I help you carve out some time to look for a new job? Because this is making you sad. And no matter what you say, I have all this evidence. So let's just, you know, do what, do what you will with this information, but this is what I've noticed. And also think, you know, partners as well, like, I tried to be nice. I tried to be nice for such a long time. I was with this person for seven years and he would not get help. 
and I let him not get help and I stayed with him even though I didn't want to I stayed because I thought I'm patient and I'm nice and and I'll just be here I can deal with this and it's fine so I'll just stay and that was so cruel of me I should have said you must go and see someone or I will leave and then I finally did it and I gave him a year and he didn't get help and then as soon as I left, he got help and he's so much happier and he's with someone who he loves and who's right for him. And he's just a world better than he was. But I kept him stagnant for seven years because I was trying to be nice. Mm. An so, that's an incredible insight. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I think that that's a really, hmm. that's a, it can be such a key for people what you've just said, because I think that so many people think that they're helping. You know, and, yeah. and, I, and genuinely with their whole heart think that they're helping. You know, yeah. if I'm not here for this person, who's going to be here for them? If I'm not the one that they can fall back on, then who is going to be the one that they can fall back on? You know, they are going exactly. to Yeah, whereas you're actually, yeah, like you said, keeping them in that place by, you know, not letting them fall a little. It's a, yeah, yeah, okay. So you said you had a heap of them. So that this first one's been an absolute corker. Do you have something <laughs> else? And I, I like, you've, you've led off strong. Do you have anything else up your sleeve? Uh, my second one is that you should always be a voice for the voiceless when you can, um, you know, and that's not about screaming and yelling. It's about spending the time and listening. So listening to the other side, um, I don't eat meat and I love animals so much, um, but I would love to chat to a farmer um, because I think there's a lot of farm, you know, a meat farmer. And I think there's a lot of meat farmers who genuinely love their animals, um, but who just have a different understanding of the world to me and it's not that I think I can get my point across but I think that I can make the idea of you know vegetarianism veganism animal activism a bit more palatable to them uh then they are going to be gentler I I think I suppose I, I might be waffling a little bit but I think you have to stand up for things that need standing up for in a way that is patient and that is kind and accessible because I think screaming at each other not I think screaming at this isn't my idea this is proven you know there's a psychology that you stamp your foot and people don't listen you have to have conversations you have to have empathy for the quote-unquote other side um and do your best to to spend time in those conversations because it's it's fucking tiring and it's fucking annoying and some people sure some people especially people with uh faith you know if people are religious and they're maybe homophobic because they're religious um which is not everyone at all that's not all religious people but i know that a lot of people do find that you can't argue with someone based on faith but you can argue with someone if they have reasoning skills so i just think uh, we must do better we must do better for our causes and for the people and animals and the world, the things that we want to help, we have to be more patient to the, to the problems we're coming up against. And we have to understand why those problems exist because we're not really that different. And I also think, I don't know. Yeah. The divide between the left and right is, is, is a big topic. So I don't necessarily want to. What I do want to like, I'll, I'll, yeah, take something out of what you said and we'll focus mm-hmm. on that then because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I loved your example about the farmers because I think the farmers is an example that I can definitely relate to because my parents are dairy farmers of course and I'm you know I haven't eaten meat in 20 plus years and it's something that I constantly have discussions around because I see people post about farming and the cruelty of farming and yet where I grew up like it's a family farm you'll never meet anybody who loves animals more than my father like I mean he literally chose a career where he could be 
surrounded by and work with animals every day of his life he didn't do it because he hated animals he did it because he loves animals and you know he didn't do it because he hates nature he does it because he loves nature this is a man who cares more about climate change than my intellectual discussions about climate change living in the city you know this is a man whose very livelihood depends on when it rains and when it doesn't rain and whether you can predict the seasons and all these sort of things you know how you can shelter these animals in the middle of a storm and all these you know things that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and yet in our political system, I see so often that we, we disenfranchise people who should be our allies. Farmers should be allies when we're talking about climate change. Farmers should be allies when we're talking about, you know, being kind to animals because they also, like particularly like those frontline, you know, small farmers, family farmers, they also disagree with factory farming. They also find the idea of, you know, you're putting a whole bunch of chickens in a factory and not letting them, you know, they hate that. You know, yeah, like they, exactly. They are disgusted by that. That is that to them is a bastardization of the thing that they do. So I think that what you have actually hit on is an incredibly powerful piece of you know the, the idea that you can talk to these people and realize, oh fuck, we're actually on the same side. Yeah. Been, people have been telling us that we are you know, enemies of each other, and yet we are actually on the same side, just from a different point of view. Exactly, exactly, and it's just you know we. I think that we are so ready to tear each other down. And I understand that. I understand the hurt and I understand the, I, the thinking of, it's not my job to educate you. I understand where that comes from, but I think it is your job. I think yeah. it's everyone's <laughs> job to educate everyone. Imagine if Rosa Parks said, yeah. um, it's not my job to do this. I'm just going to do as I'm told. I'm not making a fuss. They can figure it, look it up, Google it. Like, you know, she did something. And I'm not saying you have to be Rosa Parks. I'm just saying... It's, it's everyone's responsibility. Unfortunately, it sucks. It's not fair, but it's everyone's responsibility. But it's interesting. So uh, Jordan Raskopoulos was on the show and she, I think, had a really great insight onto this, into this, which was she said, often I'm not educating that person on behalf of them. I am educating mm. that person on the behalf of the next me that they run into. You know, the idea that, you know, the education is not for that person. The education yeah. is for the person who's going to follow in Jordan's footsteps and won't have to have that conversation because Jordan had it. And I thought that was a really great way to look at it, which is, yes, you don't have a responsibility to educate that person, but maybe, you know, you can make the world a better place for the next person who comes along by, you know, doing that work. But you've also talked about, you know, sometimes it's not the people on the front line of that shouldn't have to have that conversation over and over. And that's why I think it's incredible what you're doing with the guide dog program, which is you're saying I will have this conversation so yeah. that somebody doesn't have to have this conversation over and over and over again who's on the front line of it. So I think that's cool. The idea of having the conversation on somebody else's behalf. Yeah, you know, letting people can speak for themselves and they can and they should and when they want to, that is fantastic. It's not that, you know, they need people don't need saviors. Um, but people need to talk and people need allies and people people who need who are on the other side of these things need to know that maybe people they respect 
uh, disagree with them. And, and that can change, that can change a whole thought process that can challenge a whole brain and neural pathways and create empathy where there was no empathy. And if that makes a softer landing place for the next person who lands there, that's fantastic. No matter who makes the softer landing space. And obviously you have to look after yourself, especially if you are, um, you know, in a, in a minority group or, or, um, in any way, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe, um, I suppose, yeah, it just in any minority group or, or in any way discriminated against, I think you need to look after yourself and you have the right to say, I'm not doing this anymore because you've been doing it forever. But um, if you're not in that, then stand stand up. <laughs> you know, stand up. Women, especially women, need to stand up for trans women and um, things like that. For, the, for those, you know, those who have been uh, maligned a bit need to go, I'm you know, I'm, I'm here now and now I have a voice and I'm going to give it to someone else rather so, than not want to. You've touched on it a little bit, but I think it's a good topic, which is how to be an effective ally, mm. you know, and not how to make it about you and how not to centre yourself in the conversation, you know, necessarily, unless it's helpful, you know, unless you're doing it for the person you're acting on behalf of rather than doing it for yourself. But how do you... How do you make those decisions? How do you make sure, you know, how do you be a, a good ally in your opinion? I think you listen. I think that's probably the most important thing is just to listen. You know, there's that whole, um, the idea of if, if you see someone uh, being questioned by the police and you think maybe they're being questioned because of the way they look or their profession or their ethnicity, you don't want to march up and jump in the police's face and be like, what's going on? But you might want to walk up and say, hello, do you, do you feel safe? Do you understand why you're being spoken to by this officer? Do you know what's happening? And if not, then you can turn to the police officer and, and say, this person doesn't know. And, you know, that's a specific example. And I, I don't think um, all police uh, are awful, I, but I, it's a huge problem, you know, obviously. Um, so I think listening to people, asking people, not being afraid of people, not assuming because they have an accent or because they look different to you that they're going to freak out. Um, if you try and speak to them, I think there's a lot of weird fear, that kind of bystander effect. People just watch. Um, I think we need to be more active, uh, but also, you know, keep your ears open. It's not about you. It's not your hero moment. You're just there. You're on, you're on the bench and if you're needed, you just got to be ready to get in. I think it's, I think it's that. And also asking questions, asking questions of your friends or people who, you know, who might say, you know, a, a man says, oh, the old ball and chain, she's so annoying or whatever, instead of going, ha ha ha. Or instead of going, that's anti-feminist, you go, what do you mean? Why? Why is that? Um, you know, you had Naomi Higgins on uh, recently and she's a good friend of mine. She's so good at that. Asking why people go, oh, women. And she'll go, Why? What do you mean? And just this beautiful little innocent face. What are you saying? Why? Why? Oh, did the woman, is she mean to you? Oh my goodness. Are you okay? Why? Like she's just, she's so good at it. And I think it's a really great um, example, even though I, I know she's being an antagonist, but um, I, I, I might do it a little bit gently than Naomi, but I think there's room in the world for Naomi's and Michelle's as allies. <laughs> Where does that come from? Do you think you're, I mean, it, well, I'm just going to describe it as empathy. You can describe it as whatever else you would like to, but yeah, it feels like there's some sort of natural empathy there for, you know, others and their journeys and, you know, their life experiences. Where do you think that comes from for you? Uh, I've always loved stories and I think 
because I've always, I mean, that's, I mean, that's such a silly thing to say. Everyone loves stories, but I guess I had such a rich imagination. And again, I grew up, my brother and sister much older than me. So I grew up sort of as an only child. When you say um, stories, I mean, that's yeah. a very broad thing to say. When you say, what do you actually mean when you say stories? Um, Irish folk tales, uh-huh. Irish folk music, uh, Spanish music, t- television, books, everything films i just um i would devour any kind of story musicals songs um and so i think i just always really liked the idea of other people's stories but i also have a feeling that my mirror neurons just over fire a bit i think my brain is just a bit oh that's happening to me when it's not you know i can really take on other people's uh, emotions and I can r- I think I'm quite skilled at imagining what it is to be another person and I guess that's acting training as well maybe um, and always wanting to be an actor so trying to research how to become one so maybe I, that just happened but I really do think I was kind of born quite quite empathetic and always quite concerned I mean in kindergarten I remember <laughs> this was such a stupid I there was a boy who always got bullied and I would go and I was this tall I've been this tall forever and I just stopped how, growing. How, t- how tall is this tall for people listening 163 centimeters tall um I went to kindergarten in a full bra like I've just I grew and I stopped <laughs> and so <laughs> there's this boy who was always getting bullied and I would go up to his bullies I would pick them up and I would throw them on the ground because I cared about him. And obviously that was a stupid thing to do because uh, I, then it was, he was being saved by a girl, which wasn't helpful to him socially. Um, and he never asked me to help him and he probably could have stood up for himself, but I was the biggest one in school and I wanted to look after him. I thought it was wrong. And so I stopped it from happening. Um, I've always been a bit of a intervener. I love the underdog. My last dog was a scrappy little staffy like the literal underdog, you know. I just love. I uh, I have a lot of I have a lot of love. <laughs> yeah, a lot of love for the underdog. That's a okay. All right. I, I'm conscious of the fact that obviously you're backstage at the gala and today's a big day for you. And I like we're already 45 minutes into this conversation. Oh, that's okay. I mean, I'm already done with my rehearsal. I'm fine. Look how calm you are. I love this. Uh, Thank you. It's not a big deal. This is the thing when you've had so many people die and you've had, you know, this is, okay. I could go out there and ruin it. That's okay. So that's an interesting perspective in of itself, because I'm not sure even after 25 years of doing this, that I have that perspective. I still think that I would be too nervous to do something like this on the day that I was doing, you know, my first gala spot, let alone probably my 20th gala spot. So, <laughs> um, I... I, I, you've talked about the idea of these bad things that have happened in your life and the perspective that it gives you. So let's circle back on that a little bit because I think that that is, you know, you, you talked about how big cancer has been in your life and obviously we've spoken about your dad and we referenced your brother, but can we talk a little bit more about just how much cancer has like played a role in your life and what, what that's meant for you and the approach that you have to your life? Yeah, so I guess a few years after my my dad died, my brother was diagnosed with cancer and he he passed away quite quickly as well. Um, Not as quickly as dad, but within, I think, about eight months. He went from being, you know, a really healthy young... He was only 42, very young. Um, And I suppose when that happened, it was very clear that dad had been the canary in the coal mine. 
and that something genetically was going on. Um, and so my, uh, yeah, my sister had had some, you know, polyps in her stomach, but she's okay. Um, but I've had nothing and I'm the youngest by quite a lot. My brother's 15 years older than me. My sister is, I think 12 years older than me. Um, so I've got a bit of a head start, and I've also been vegan for like 10 years, um, which is according to the current science, a bit of a head start, especially with colorectal cancers, but I do drink alcohol, you know, and that's, that's an, that's a factor. Um, but because of all of those things, I am a good person to have at the familial cancer center in Melbourne. So I go there, um, they test me, they check how I'm going. I'm interesting to them, to them and they look after me. So the idea is something will probably happen. Um, and we just have to keep an eye and catch it early because it seems like it moves quite fast. So because of that, I suppose I try not to, it's that thing, you know, it's life is too precious and it, to be taken seriously. You can't sweat the small stuff. And this is the hugest day of my career, really, in many ways. Eva's just shaking. Um, but this is, you know, this is a huge day for me. I, I started with a brekkie radio interview at the radio station where I used to be a promo girl and wish that I was on the radio. Uh, I came here and I did my first gala tech and now I'm doing this podcast with you, whom I have loved and respected since I was a kid, you know. Um, it's a huge day for me, but I... I will not let it be life or death because it's not, it's just not, it's about joy and it's about fun and it's going to be great. The audience is going to have a lovely time. And my job is just to help facilitate that lovely time. And if my particular four minutes isn't their favorite four minutes, I still got to be here. I still got to do all this stuff. And at the end of the day, I've got a roof on my head and you know, I can go home and have some hot chips and then there's another day, you know? I mean, I am repulsed by your healthy attitude to comment. Ah! <laughs> I mean, yesterday I was very stressed. Like, I, you know, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, absolutely what you're saying is couldn't be more true. But it is also still hard to rationalise that idea. You know, everybody who's going to be in that room tonight, like you said, thousands of people are going to be in that room tonight. And all they want to do is have a good time. And I'm sure that when you come out on stage, all they'll want to do is enjoy it. There's not going to be anyone in this room going, oh, fucking Michelle. This yeah, exactly. Like, you mean? like yeah, I, think, I think that you're going to be absolutely fine. You, like you said, you're on a show hosted by, you know, people that you've worked with. I imagine plenty of the audience, you know, there are going to be huge Auntie Donna fans as well. Like, I mean, it's couldn't be a better environment to go out there and absolutely yeah. smash what it is that you're going to do. But the fact that you actually feel that as well, it seems incredibly healthy to me. So I'm very lucky that my brain will listen to that part, you know, because I think a lot of people can rationalize that and say, oh, it's fine, but um, it's hard to believe it. And, and that's, and I think that's where I probably still, to a certain extent, I am at, or at least I am at at my worst, which is that mm. I can be very rational about, you know, what is happening, but there is another part of my brain that is incredibly irrational that sometimes just drowns it out. So do you not have that part of your brain anymore? No, I, ha you just I have that part of my brain yeah. for sure, but I just, um, I'm good at listening to it and going, okay, you're, you're afraid and that's okay, but we're going to be okay. You know, that's just a little little Braz who's worried about a thing and I just go, it's okay, babe, 
I've got you, you're safe. And sometimes there's many little brazzers who are like, I am worried. And then that's when I'm worried. But most of the time I can kind of ignore it. You know, I'm not one to get mad and yell or to get stressed and um, lash out. I'm usually quite patient. I've done a lot of yoga. I wonder if Mm -hmm. that's a thing that helps. I try to do meditation and spend a lot of time outside. Um, But there is a speediness to my brain that goes from that person was just an asshole to, oh, what's happened to that person? Are they okay? Why are they behaving that way? Um, And I know everyone has that, but I think mine just goes a little bit quicker to why are they acting like that? They must be. And I think a lot of that's a healthy ego as well. I, I think I'm nice and I think I'm good. I think I'm talented and I think... You know, I don't think I'm the best, but I think I'm really, I, I'm good and I'm good at what I do. I'm a good storyteller, I'm a good singer, um, and I'm nice to be around. I'm, people feel comfortable with me and so, and I've got great hair and <laughs> I'm good with dogs. And because of those things, I'm like, you know, I just assume the best. Prepare for the worst, assume the best. I don't doubt that any of those things are true. In fact, uh, with even without really knowing you, I, I, you know, well, I can see the hair, so the hair's great. I'm not, I don't have a problem <laughs> with that. I, I assume the rest of those things are true as well, but I'm captivated by the fact that you can say those things so easily. Like, you know, that you can <laughs> list off your good qualities, like, without... I mean, sometimes on this show, I ask people to, you know, what their best quality are, what they're, what they're like at their best. And it can be a really confronting question for people because people are so ready to talk about what they're like at their worst or what their faults are. But when you say, who are you when you're at your best, they find that quite intimidating. But you just listed off a whole bunch of things you are when you're at your best. So yeah, where does I think the, it's good. Yeah, where does the confidence to be able to say that out loud come from? Practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you have to keep a bit of an evidence log as well. You know, when you feel good about yourself, write it down. If someone you respect says something nice, write it down. Um, you get a really good, I don't know, something wonderful happens. You get chosen to do the fucking gala. You write it down. And then if you feel bad about yourself, you go to your evidence log and you go, there, here's all this evidence. Who am I to ignore this? Me as a reasonable person, this all says that I'm doing well. So good for me. And uh, I think... Also, I mean, only child, so, you know, a bit of arrogance. Um, but I can also easily list my uh, bad qualities. You know, I just, I'm interested in myself. I'm interested in people and I'm interested in who I am. My, my weaknesses are, you know, I can't dance very well, um, especially for a music theatre performer. I, I can't dance very well. I am you can definitely dance well enough for a comedy performer, though. So I definitely why. can. Yes, yeah. yes. That's why. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, sometimes I'm underprepared because I think I can just wing things. Sometimes I give people advice they do not fucking want, and I just need to chill out and listen because all they needed was somebody to go, yeah, that sucks. Um, and sometimes I'm, I, I imagine um, my hair is too big. And, and there are too many flyaways for the cameraman and it's frustrating. Um, but I think, you know, practice saying that you're good and also years of having to put my hand up and say, let me have a go. You know, being a woman in comedy is easier now than it was when I started. But when I started, which is not long ago, but it's, you know, it is seven years. Um, you had to just go, could I have a go, please? Can I, can I have a go? And if you go, can I have a go? Sorry, I don't know that you don't make people feel comfortable. So you have to look at the person and go, what's going to make you feel comfortable? Probably if I act like a straight white man and I say, hey, I'm pretty good at that. Can I have a go? So practice. It is, I think you've stumbled on something, uh, you know, incredibly insightful, which is that particularly why those early years have been so, um, you know, often 
tougher for women. The, the, there's the obvious stuff, the headline stuff, the, you know, the sexism, the misogyny, the, you know, late night, unsafe working environments, all these, you know, things that we, I think we have an awareness of. But I think what you've stumbled upon, Adam Spencer always used to say when we were doing the radio show back in the day, because we'd always get a lot more uh, male callers than female, even though all our demographics would say at Triple J that we definitely had as many female listeners as we had male listeners. And Adam's big thing was, if a man farts in an elevator, he thinks everybody needs to hear about it. If a woman climbs Mount Everest, they're like, a lot of people have climbed Mount Everest. It's not really that big a deal. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and particularly in those early days, like you said, there is that, you know, what do they call the, the confidence of a you know mediocre white man or whatever the expression is. Yeah. It, it can be quite helpful. So you needed to learn how to put your hand up for things yourself. Yeah, just to ask for stuff. I mean, even it's led me to such wonderful places. You know, I uh, working with Arnie Donnamore, I probably asked for that. I mean, that I've been very lucky. I'm very, we're very good friends, and now we're such a solid team that I'm always just kind of around. And I got to do the LA thing. But I think, like my friend, beautiful Tom Ballard, was telling me two years ago. He said, "I'm doing a play for Comedy Festival," and I said well, you know, I'm an actor. And he was like, oh yeah, I know. And I was like, what, what's, what are the roles? And he was like, one of them is actually a singer. And I was like, Tom, call, get your people to call my people. And he was like, ah, oh, okay. And like, we were friends, but I was quite, I really put upon him. Anyway, uh, a month went by and I thought he's ignoring me and that's fine um, because I was quite full on and I regretted it. And I was like, oh, I was really hard on poor Tom. And I was like, hi, Amy. I was very American. Um, but then I got an email um, from my agent saying, oh, you know, they, they want you to come and do this play. And I went and did the play. And then Sean McKellar came to the play and that served as my audition for Mad as Hell. And then I got cast in Mad as Hell because Sean had seen me in Auntie Donna and, you know, it, just kind of knew and it all came because I went I'm good let me have a go I promise I'll be good and then I mean you have to do that and then you have to be good you have to do the work as well um but women we just apologize for everything everything and non-binary people too tend to apologize a lot for, for everything um I know there's a lot of men who do it people apologize we apologize a lot but um just try and think like an American sometimes sometimes I, it can be with helpful. the kindness of a kiwi yeah that's right yeah you just need a little yeah little combination of both somehow Australia yeah. should be that combination of both but isn't yeah it's the worst of everywhere God. so working with Sean must be an interesting thing I think because I mean you know it, it, you talk about the idea of growing up you know watching my generation of comedians but I grew up watching Sean's generation of comedians and he is still to this day you know there's I would be hard to, off the top of my head, think of anyone I admire more than Sean. I recently needed a bit of advice around a project that I was working on and, you know, could, was like, Sean's the only person who could give me this advice. I wonder if I just ring up Sean, whether he'll, you know, take my phone call and talk me through this thing, which of course he did because he's, a, you know, a wonderful human being as well as being a comedy genius. So what was that experience like? Because that's work... I mean, I would be intimidated walking onto set to do stuff with Sean how was it for you um it was I mean obviously it was amazing um he just sent me an email just personally emailed me and that was quite full-on um <laughs> because he's the king he's the king and you know someone who is so focused and motivated by silliness mm -hmm. but also with such a social conscience and such an intelligence yep. And such great hair 
it's just so much. Ticks like, a lot of your so, boxes, Michelle, is what you're saying. Ticks a lot of my boxes, <laughs> yeah. So he's very important to me. He was important to me as an icon and now he's important to me as a friend and a colleague. And, oh, God, he's just so generous with his time. And But he, I, I think I did quite well. A lot of people told me that when people have walked onto that set before, um, you know, there was a lot of nerves and so I was ready for there to be a lot of nerves. But I just went... I earned this. I know how to do this. I'm good at sketch comedy. That's why I'm here. Um, it's just a job, you know, it's a dream job, but it's just a job. So do your job. And so I just did my job and I, I did, I did really well. But when you make Sean laugh, it's, it's like a choir of angels singing. It's so special. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn from Sean? Like you're in an environment like that. I, I imagine there must've been something that you, observed him doing or some piece of advice he gave you or just from the work itself that you learnt from that experience? I learnt I learnt to trust myself and speak up for things. I learnt this a little bit from working with the Cates as well. I watched them sort of notice something they weren't happy with and put their hand up and make a f- like not make a fuss but um you know say we need to change this even though it's going to set us back time. It's going to you know, take up a chunk of, of time and we don't have that time, but it's important. So I'm not really a perfectionist. And I think watching Sean and, and, and the Kates, um, I went, Oh, okay. You're allowed to ask for more. You're allowed to ask for what you want. And you, you have to be grateful to be there. Of course. Yes. But you can't be just happy to be here. You have to be happy to be here and I'm going to deliver what I want to deliver. Um, and I really, Sean doing that was, um, was amazing you know he's so likable and so lovely to everyone he knows everyone's name on set um I think just watching his face as you learn it's a master class you know in timing and I I I will never stop learning from Sean I don't think no he's yeah it's incredible uh well, you've worked with an incredible array of people, you know, and suddenly you start to list them off, right? You, you, know, you work with the Cates, you, know, you, you learn from them, you work with Sean, you learn from them, you work with Auntie Donnie, you learn from them. What, what, when you're doing your own stuff, when you're not collaborating with others, because you've made a reputation in a way collaborating with others, you know, I think mm. probably more broadly, the way that people will know your work is through your collaborations with other people. So then when it comes to creating something that is you, yourself, what does that look like? It's interesting because I really miss the presence of Laura from Double Denim, my duo partner. I really miss her on stage because it's just a play and I love to play and try and make each other laugh. But I guess it's just a lot more play with the audience um, but it's nice. It's right, nice. So for the me. audience becomes the other person that you're bouncing on. Yeah, they're the other part of the relationship. It's you know, it's it's not a threesome anymore. It's a twosome, and it's just me and the audience, um, and that's fine. You know, in a way, that's more intimate. And the story that I'm telling with this particular solo show is is quite intimate, um, and I want to draw people in. But it, it's nice for me to step out and go. I can do this by myself. Um, it doesn't feel like I have something to prove uh, and it doesn't feel like I have to be the same as I am with other people. It feels like this is a space for me to make something. And I, I always say Gillian Cosgriff, who's a wonderful comedic and musical mind, is my director. And Tim Lancaster, my actual partner, is my accompanist. So I have that as a team and, you know, my management and my 
Comedy Republic, the beautiful venue, everyone sort of is a lovely family to have. But at the end of the day, it's just me telling the story. It's quite liberating, I think, because I, I have to play all the roles, but I also don't have to play any roles. You know, I'm the one who throws the ball and I'm the one who catches. So it's exciting and it's different. What is your aim for the show? Like what is, you know, what's the point of it, I guess is the question I'm asking, which can sometimes be a difficult question to answer. But why does it exist? What's it for? I write every show I write. I decide this before I write the show. So it's a lovely question to be asked. But I want people to leave um, singing. I want them to leave singing the songs. I want them to feel joyful. I want them to have had a bit of a sort of a cathartic moment. They don't have to have cried, but I want them to feel something. And I want them to walk out feeling the way that you feel when you see a really nice landscape or the way that you feel when you've spent five minutes patting a dog after a busy day. I want them to feel their shoulders relax and I want them to feel like a little cracked open and a lot warmer. I know that's very masturbatory and I also know that's very um, vague, but realistically it's about my life philosophy and the way I live and I really want people to leave feeling like they don't have to worry about tiny little things and they should go out and do the things that they want to do. They shouldn't waste their time um, and they shouldn't, they should savour every, every whiskey or cup of tea or um, every conversation and they should get off their fucking phones. <laughs> okay, so that's interesting. Get off your phones. Are you a get off your phones person? Do you live what you preach? Uh, I try to. I don't always. Definitely don't. Um they're very annoying. If I didn't have to do this as a job or if I make it to a certain uh, level of success where I don't have to have social media, I will probably get rid of it um, because I don't like it uh, at all. Um, especially, I feel uncomfortable with my, you know, Instagram. I feel um, I got a lot of, I started working with Annie Donna and I got a lot of, oh, she's pretty and funny. And I was like, I was never pretty and that's why I was funny. So if you tell me I'm pretty, now I feel like I have to be pretty. And I went through a phase where I felt like I had to be, um, thin and I had to always wear like lipstick because fans would stop me in the street and I wanted to look pretty in the pictures because I'd read on the internet that they thought I was pretty um, and I think that's so dangerous and I don't want young comedians who are women to you know look at me and go well she's pretty I should be pretty that's not I'm not I'm not um, not that I'm not it doesn't matter what you look like I'm fine I'm a seven out of ten that's great <laughs> But I'm, I don't want to be a 10. Maybe a Melbourne 7, like, you know, get, <laughs> get to the regionals. You're definitely like... Oh, regionals. I'm a, yeah. yeah, oh God, I'm a Wagga 9. Fuck yeah, yeah rock and roll. If you'd stayed in Wagga, I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like, you know, I don't, I don't want to push that. Yeah. And I found, I've lent into it. I have felt myself doing it and post nice selfies because that's what gets people's attention. I don't want that. I don't want that to be a part of me. And that's not what I look up to. I look up to Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler. And I mean, they're amazing people and they're beautiful women, but it's because they're fucking funny. It's not because, you know, and Michaela Cole, like just all these incredible women who are making cool shit. It's not, um, it's not because they're hot and that will fade. I don't want that to be attached to me. And I think Instagram 
has encouraged me to attach that to myself. But yeah, in general, get the fuck off your phones. I've got a lot of friends with ADHD, so they're always wanting to do lots of things at at once. So a lot of friends are um, often on their phones and I've had to um, adjust to it because I used to be like, get off. But now it's like, okay, you have a disability. I'll let you have your phone. (laughs) I also uh, think though that, you know, I mean, again, absolutely. And I'm not here to, you know, judge what people do with their lives. But I think that we so often and we're only coming to the realization in a broader public sense that they're designed to keep us looking at them like all the beeps and all the noises and all the colors and all the you know notifications and all these sort of things the way that the news cycle works on twitter or the way that you you know people's photos are responded to on instagram it's all by design there are all algorithms there are all people programming these things to make you feel that way to make you you want to look at it more often to make you want to look down at your phone rather than out at the world so i think that you know if you're losing that battle i always think you're up against massive forces massive forces that are conspiring against you to try to make you look at your phone and so don't feel bad that you do but know that it is a very active choice to not do that and i think the social media one i'm always in love with people who don't have social media i think would love to get to the day where i could just because I love watching, you know, I mean, I probably wouldn't have been aware of your work very much if it hadn't been for social media. There are so many guests that I've had on this show that have come because I've liked what they've been about on Twitter. I've liked what they've been about on Instagram. And, and then I've gone and explored more of their work. So it can be an incredibly positive thing as well. But yeah. there, there is a negativity attached to it. Yesterday was a big news cycle day in Australia. And I found that I was just checking in on my phone every 10 seconds to see what would yeah. develop next. And, you know, and there's a bit of my brain that's like, well, you work in this area and you need to be up to date with this. And I was like, well, I could get up to date at the end of the day. I could just check in once exactly. at the end of the day and be up to date. They're not going to call me for my opinion in the next half an hour on this. Exactly. Um, and if they do, you can check it in five minutes. Yeah. You know, it's there is this... Um, this insane pull to the phone that I'm, I'm trying to ignore, especially to Twitter, because every time I look at Twitter, I'm just, I just, there's this little mantra in my head. That's like Hitler rose to power while the left squabbled amongst themselves. Hitler rose to power while the left squabbled amongst themselves. Like, I'm just like, come on, we're going to get it together. But Okay. The, it, that's an interesting topic. The idea of, you know, the fa- fracturing of the left, you know, the left hates oh. itself, you know, particularly around, um, you know, the fracturing of the left, the fact that the left eats itself so constantly, I think is worrying because the thing that I often admire about the right is their complete and utter capacity to put aside all the things they disagree with to form a coalition <laughs> to, you know, kind of force through the thing that they all agree on. You know, you can have people who would never talk to each other and have such comp- you know, competing ideologies, but they all agree on this one particular thing. You know, let's keep immigrants out, for example, would might be the thing. And so then you just have all these people from the right just going, well, we all agree on this. Let's put all the other shit aside so that we can keep the immigrants out. Whereas the left seems to be the complete opposite of that, which is like, we agree on most things, but... We think you should use this word and we think you should use this word. So you're the worst people of all time. Yeah, I think the screaming at each other or the, you know, the, um, I suppose for want of a better word, the cancellation rather than, it it, it goes again to having those gentle conversations, even though you're frustrated, even though you're tired, saying, hello, it, it hurts me when you do this and these are the reasons why it hurts me. I'm sure that you're not meaning, you know, assuming the best of people because people are usually trying their best. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure that you didn't mean to do this, but this is something that 
that I felt like you were doing? Did you mean to do that? If not, would you mind correcting it in this way? It's okay, you know, or next time maybe do this and doing that privately rather than necessarily, you know, there's definitely call out culture is important. It's important if people don't change their behavior, it's important. Um, but the little things, the little, you know, micro things that people get so upset about and just tear each other down when they're on the same side, you know, Oh, you think you're an ally and you're saying this. It's like, hello, if uh, I've noticed that you're an ally, you might not realize this can be upsetting because of this reason. It's so much more helpful than, oh, you call yourself an ally? Well, you're not. You're a piece of shit. Get in the bin. And it's like the bin keeps growing and then we get mad at the bin. And it's like we put them all in the bin. You can't expect someone we go it's that Sarah Silverman was saying you go where the love is and I think that's so true and the right is really good at loving each other and being unified and I think part of it is that a lot of them in America especially have faith and so they just go well we have faith in this one thing and that's fine and that's it and that's fine and they are also good at going I'm racist but this black man likes Trump and this guy, he's not, he's not like other black men and they'll just go yep that's fine and that's fine between them the left would never accept that and we shouldn't accept racism but they're just they will put their shit aside and we will not put our shit aside even if it's the tiniest little thing you know i think it is very scary i I saw like a prominent vegan arguing with a prominent feminist recently and i was like guys we gotta get it to get Rupert Murdoch is still doing his why are you talking to each other like talk to the this is not helpful just yeah I I mean I think that particularly as a you know a white cis you know man in this society I try to take all criticism you know like if somebody's angry in the criticism then I try to just you know be like I'm not going to react negatively to you just because the criticism was delivered in a negative way but I'm not I don't always get that right because sometimes it's very hard not to be defensive when somebody attacks you and the thing that I always go back to is whether it's right or wrong whether it's fair or not fair that as you said people respond better to kindness than they do to direct sort of anger and criticism and when people yeah. have had a problem with something i've said or the way that i've said something i just know in a personal sense if somebody's like fuck you you said this you're blah 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 my immediate reaction is to go no fuck you you know you're completely yeah. wrong whereas if somebody comes to me and says hey you made this joke and i'm pretty sure you didn't intend for it to be made this way but here's how it came across and and i'm much more willing to go Oh, yeah, that does make sense. I had not thought of it like that. I'm glad that you've told me about that. I will endeavour in the future not to, you know, do it that same way. Now, Why wouldn't you want to help someone? Why wouldn't you want to make a bridge that is easier to cross? Why would you put a terrible bridge there if you're trying to fix something? Make it easier. Make it better. It will feel better for you as well. It doesn't feel good to yell at someone. Well, it feels it ca- good it to be comes kind. back to that idea of, I think, and this is what's at the heart of it, is do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And exactly. if you genuinely want to be effective, if you genuinely, like it's very nice to be able to say I'm on the right side of history and I think all the right things myself. But if you really want, you know, society to change for things to get better, you need to concentrate on being if it's least as effective as you are right, I would have yeah. thought. I spent Christmas talking to my uncle about Michael McCormick and mm. listening to some actually really good stuff that he'd the done that I'd never heard about. Member for Wagga Wagga, isn't he? My, member for Wagga Wagga, yeah. yep. 
uh, unfortunately, yes. And he's obviously a man that I don't um, really agree with, but I found out that he'd like done some good stuff for some local immigrants and I was surprised and I didn't know. And that was helpful. That was a helpful conversation for me. Uncomfortable, yucky, didn't like it, but had to accept it because my uncle was very calm and kind about his delivery. And then I tried to put my point of view forward which did not go down well but at least we tried at least we tried what about the fact that he's a dirty rotten homophobe (laughs) yeah it was like what about this article and your gay son and my uncle was like no thank you (laughs) uh so i look we have to start finishing up but uh i always ask this question what do you think happens when we die i hope that the brain i think that the brain slows down Um, And because of that, it feels like you see your life flashing in front of your eyes, you know, that whole thing. I think that maybe that is what happens. You see it all because everything is kind of slowing down and then you're just gone. Um, As someone who's had to, you know, deal with this, you know, as as looming quite large in their life, you know, sometimes this is an intellectual question that I ask people. But, you know, in your case, yeah, there's a very real world consequence of it all. Do you think about death a lot? Is it something that is very present in your world? Yeah, every day I think about death all the time. Um, I always have, even before my father died, I used to say goodbye, see you later, talk to you later, have a conversation with you later, because this weird part of my brain was like, see you later, you can see a dead person, talk to you later, you can talk to a dead person, have a conversation with you later, you can't have a conversation. So I would say it until I was like 18, I would say it whenever anyone I love left the room or left the house, I was always worried about death. And now I have reason to be worried about it. Um, I'm a bit more at peace with it um, because I know it um, and I know grief Um, but I think that when you die, there is an energy that, you know, is just there and it's somewhere else. And I like the idea. I like thinking that my dad is in the trees and in the ground and, um, you know, my dog, especially my, my last dog, I really, really miss. And sometimes I see moments of, you know, little flickers of him in Eva, my, my dog, and that's not real, but it doesn't matter that it's real for me. And that's fine. When your life flashes before your eyes, what are the bits you're looking forward to seeing again? Um, a lot of late nights at Edinburgh Fringe, <laughs> and a lot of <laughs> and a lot of um, sleep-ins with my partner and my dog. Um, do you worry about being remembered? Is legacy something that's important to you? It's really important to me in a funny way because I don't think I'm going to have kids. Um, but it's really important to me to the point where I had to sit myself down the other day and go, who are you telling, who are you writing this story for? If you don't want a daughter, who is it for? Um, and really challenge the idea of like, do I actually want kids or maybe I want to be a foster mum, or maybe I have an insane ego. Um, but my story is really important to me, not about being remembered really, but the way I exist, I'm protective of. What's been not said yet I guess is my question you feel like somebody who yeah because of the circumstances you've been through but I think partly because of your personality as well it seems that you're not a person who's probably left a heap of things unsaid so far (laughs) and uh, and again I'm not sure I I make a lot of you know snap assumptions on this podcast but 
it feels like you're a person who's probably willing to say things and share things if they need to be said or need to be shared. What's what's unsaid? Is there still stuff that is unsaid? Is there still stuff that you want to share that you just haven't quite worked out the way to share yet or the words to, you know, be able to share it yet? Yeah, I mean, I think... I suppose in a way I've spoken about the appearance stuff, but I think there is a real... There's something in me that cares more about my appearance, my size, my weight. I care more about that than I like or know how to speak to. And I worry about that. I I have a real conflict about how that affects me as a person and as a woman and as a person in the public eye. And I don't don't really know how to articulate it and my relationship with it because I suppose... I'm in it and that's not to say I have an eating disorder or anything like that. I don't I'm very lucky in that way, but I um it definitely dominates my thoughts sometimes. Um sometimes it doesn't. And I'm a very like I'm pretty confident usually, but there's something that I haven't hit on yet and I don't know it's sitting somewhere and I don't know what it is and I'm I'm quite afraid of it. I've got a new uh, question that I asked on the show that uh, I've been asking only since the 200th episode. So basically, oh, that's very you're, new. You're, you're only about the the third or fourth person that I've asked this to. So I'll be interested in your answer because so far it's been quite a good confronting question for people. But I think for you, it might have a little bit of a different idea just because I think you're living a little bit this way already. But I have this little, um, you can actually see it here. It's a little piece of metal that I have on my desk and it just... It's basically my version of, you know, an inspirational quote or whatever. And it just says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? So I try to remind myself of that, like that I should just be trying to attempt things regardless of what, you know, the result of them would be. What would you, Michelle, attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Fix everyone. (laughs) like just take away all the pain everything i would somehow become a super psychologist or do it with my comedy or yeah um i love that that's brilliant Uh, if you could have any skill in the world you are immediately brilliant at this thing you don't have to do your ten thousand hours you just are very good at it what would that skill be okay can i say two yeah of course Okay, um, zoology, like being a zookeeper. I'd oh. love to know how to deal with any and all animals or um, healing and not like a doctor, like magic. Mm-hmm. Magic healing. Yeah, like someone just got hit by a bus and I'm like, fool. Mm. <laughs> so like witchcraft, I guess witchcraft um, I mean, or trombone. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, or be, be able to use the trombone. Yeah, play the trombone. You yeah. ability to heal everybody. Oh. I don't know, I'd like to be able to play yeah. the trombone. Trombone's so, kind of fun. <laughs> either of those. <laughs> Whatever you've got going. Um, uh, can we do some plugs? Let's uh, plug your show and let people know, you know, everything that they need to do. Obviously, I'll do them in the intro as well. But uh, what do people know about where they can come and see you and enjoy your work? Yeah, so Average Bear, if you if this comes out before Average Bear yeah, starts we'll get, on... Well, we'll get it. When, are you on for the whole festival? No, the second two weeks. I think it's the second sixth. Second two weeks, great. Yeah, April the 6th, which is the same date as my show starts. That's Tuesday, okay. April the 6th. 
it is the final two weeks of the Comedy Festival and you are at Comedy Republic, which is the incredible venue that uh, Reese and Kyron and their whole crew have put together, which is just, yeah, I think, going to be um, Alex, of course, who's been previously on this show and um, I think is going to be one of those things that perhaps shapes... I get the feeling often, you know, venues and scenes and places where people can go and put on work and be inspired by, you know, like-minded, you know, sort of comedy professionals often end up growing into incredible things. And I have the feeling that Comedy Republic might, you know, two, three, five, ten years from now be regarded as one of those iconic venues for that reason. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you're on at Com- Comedy Republic from April the 6th. What time of night is your show on? 7.40 uh, and it's every day from the 6th so even on Mondays but it's going to be lovely. Comedy Republic definitely feels like an institution. It's a destination and it's a weird weird place. I really love it. It has its own vibe and energy. Uh, yeah. I, and you can sense that. I haven't been. I've not been in Melbourne the whole time that it's been open but you can tell from just, I mean I'm a a member or whatever they have i can't remember i signed up a republican a comedy yeah, republican that's what i am so i get a lot of emails so i'm very up yeah. to date what's happening <laughs> comedy republic in fact, yeah i made the mistake of buying uh, two um memberships you know early on when they were establishing it just to, <laughs> just to support them you know i, mean, I was just trying that's to so support nice. them but of now course, you get two emails i, I get two emails <laughs> I put the same address on both of them. So literally I get two emails about everything that is happening there. So, uh, uh, okay, so as well as the show in Melbourne, is there other places around the country that people will get to see it? Yeah, so I'm going to Perth and I'm going to Sydney. Um, and I'll probably add some other places, I think, as the year goes on. But um, apart from that, if you follow me on the internet, you can see I'll be screaming about any TV stuff that I'm doing. I've just finished working on a another tv show but i don't know if i'm actually allowed to say what it is so secret tv show at the moment but is there more you know uh, collaborations with people you've previously collaborated with ahead i mean mad as hell is coming back you know this year is there a chance that you'll be involved again I mean, yeah, there's no way, there's no way of knowing. Um, right. <laughs> but like, you I'm know, you don't know. Yes. I'm gonna say no, you don't take it, you know, take it as, it's genuinely like a, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I will definitely be working with um, all the people you've seen me work with. I okay. will work with I once more in much. a way. <laughs> all right. Uh, one more question. This is the, always the final question. I have a time machine. I can take it any point in the future, any point in the past. You can visit yourself, you can change an aspect of your life, you can completely ignore your own life and just go off and toodle around somewhere else. I don't really (laughs) mind, but where would you like to go? I would love to visit me as a little girl sitting in front of the TV watching the gala and tell her, but then maybe I'd ruin her. I don't know. Um, But I wish I could tell her that it's okay, that she's a bit weird and she's, she's got frizzy hair and she doesn't look like her friends and she's too tall. And one day she'll be really short and it's okay that she's like fat. And one day she won't be fat and it's fine if she's fat again. And don't worry about how you look and don't worry about being a psycho because it's going to be your your uh your i shouldn't say psycho in that way don't don't worry about being a flippity gibbet because it it will be your strength one day so just keep playing and and be vulnerable and don't don't ever become a cynic but perhaps then her ego would be too much and i'd be a nightmare Uh, it's a, a lovely image that it started with the gala and that we've had this entire conversation with you backstage at the gala. I really, it, it, I've had to um, 
put away the gala to me was such a, an iconic you know it was really the only stand-up apart from the big gig that i saw when i was growing up so that first time that i got to do the gala the first time that i got to host the gala and people have heard me bang on about this endlessly on this show but i'm going to say it again because <laughs> i think that older comedians have a responsibility also to step aside and create space for other people so i am lucky enough that they ask me still to do it every year and for the last few years i have said no because i think that it is very important to you know say no occasionally so that that spot can go to somebody else but i do miss it incredibly because it is one of the most fun nights that there are to be a comedian and i just hope that tonight is everything that you could have possibly imagined that it would have been when you were 12 years old sitting there i'm sure it's going to be i'm sure that people are going to absolutely love your spot and you are just going to enjoy every moment of being out there so go and smash the shit out of it tonight um i look Thank forward you. to i look forward to seeing you at home and watching you on the television <laughs> yeah it's crazy i mean imagine if i if i do if i really bomb now it'll be very funny to listen to this and be like oh this yeah. is the girl who yeah we'll put your set on at the end <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. <laughs>